the Lord's Supper together at the end of our service. Trust that even now your heart is being prepared to partake. If you are a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, that you would join us in that act of worship. Turn with me, please, in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're working our way uh, through this short series on doing church God's way. Now, again, um, we, we don't... The, the, the name of the series is kind of a tongue-in-cheek thing because we don't do church, right? Church is not an activity. Church is not even a place. You don't go to church on Sunday mornings. You don't do church on Sunday mornings. What you do is you gather with the church because the church is the people. The church is the people of God, the followers of Jesus Christ, disciples of, of our Lord. And so we gather. But, but nonetheless... Um, saying it with kind of a smirk. We want to do church God's way. I think you know what we mean in that, uh, that what we do here as the gathered church. How do we do that in a God-honoring way? How, do we, how does God want us to do that? Uh, we, get our, we get one of those directions from our text this morning. 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 16 says, I am writing these things to you, Hoping to come to you soon, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was manifested in the flesh was vindicated in the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The title of this sermon is A Christ-Centered Church. A Christ-Centered Church. This is one of the marks of Redeemer Bible Church. This is our vision of what we want to be more and more as each week, month, and year passes by. If you want a fuller explanation of all that, what is the, what you would call the DNA of our church or the vision, the marks of this church, which are really the marks of the biblical church that we're trying to model ourselves after, uh, there are pamphlets on the back table that, uh, that describe that to you. Uh, you can ask the ushers to point you towards that. My desire this morning... Dear church, that Christ would have the central controlling role in your life and ministry. That Jesus Christ would have the central and controlling role of your life and ministry. You know, um, in the craft of making clay pottery, uh, there's a special technique for bonding two pieces of clay and making them into one. It's called score and slip. Score and slip. First, you score the two pieces, scraping grooves into the surface like with a, uh, a fork kind of tool. And then you apply a mixture of clay and water over the grooves that you just scored in called slip. The, 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 the mixture is called slip. 
It's like a glue. Uh, finally, you, you push the two pieces together that were scored and slipped. And what happens is a tight bond is, is made. As the slip fills in all those grooves of the two pieces and dries. If you use that technique, the bond becomes strong enough to handle the heat of the kiln, to cure your, your uh, clay pot or whatever vessel you might be making. And the end result is the two, what were once two pieces is one piece. Uh, that uh, method, uh, that reality provides a good metaphor for the Christian church especially a, a church full of believers who work together for the sake of the gospel in a local church. The scoring, you could say, of the two materials are the difficulties of life, uh, the setbacks in ministry, the disappointments that we all have in each other, because we're all sinners, saved by grace, and just the hard work of ministry itself we get scraped up, right? We get scored. But the slip is Christ. The slip is Christ. We, have, we, we must have Christ as that fusing agent between each and every one of us. As we share in Christ together, we will strongly be bonded together. And the result is we will not be a collection of many different saints, but we will be one body. And we will be able to be useful, a useful vessel for the gospel of God for the world around us. Now in this passage here this morning, our Lord gives us the framework for how we can do this, how we can have Christ as our fusing, bonding agent in the church, how we can be Christ-centered. In order to do this, we must understand two things. One is the church's definition, and then the other is the church's declaration. Those are the two points this morning. The church's definition and the church's declaration. If we understand these things, uh, we will honor God by being a Christ-centered church. That's the goal. Christ must have the central controlling role in each of your individual lives, but also in the collective life of Redeemer Bible Church. He must be the center of it all. It has to be all about Him, or the result is division, faction, and the death of the church. First of all, we must understand the church's definition. What are we? What is the church? Now, verse 14 and 15, and the beginning of 15, uh, gives us the context. He says, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you soon, but in case I am delayed, I write to you so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the church, essentially. Uh, this whole passage, verse 15 through 16, it, are the theme verses of this entire book, 1 Timothy. The, this passage boils down and concentrates what the whole letter is about. The whole letter is about how to 
quote-unquote, do church. We could do this whole series out of 1 Timothy, really. But uh, this, this gets to the essence of the church. What are we? Who are we? What's our mission? What is our message? What are the non-negotiables of the church? What, what is the church? How does the church operate? What's the essence of the church? If we don't understand what the, what the church is, then logically it follows, then it's impossible to function as a church, rightly. So we have to start here. What is the church? Well, he gives three descriptions. First of all, the household of God. The household of God. The word household, oikos here in the Greek, means, in this context, it means God's family. Elsewhere, it can mean God's dwelling place, like the structure, uh, the, 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 the temple, as it were. Uh, but here, the context, especially earlier on in chapter 3, uh, the context is the family of God. That's what we are. Every one of us, if you are a believer here this morning, you are part of the family of God. You are an adopted son of God. Even if you're a woman, you're an adopted son of God. Uh, Elsewhere in Scripture, it does give a nod to we're adopted sons and daughters or brothers and sisters. But there is an importance. There is is a... a, uh, value in being an adopted son of God because the sons in biblical times get the inheritance. And so ladies, you are a woman and you're an adopted daughter of God, but, you're, but in God's eyes, in a sense, you are an adopted son because you're an heir, just like the rest of the guys. Praise the Lord for that. We are all adopted sons of God You see, when a sinner repents of his sin and turns to Christ in faith, that person is born again, right? We know that language. You're a born-again Christian. But think about that picture that God gives us, being born again. Normally, normally, when someone is born in this world, they're born into what? A family. So also is every child of God. They're saying, you have been born into a family. That's the case for us. God is your father. John 20, verse 17. Other believers are your brothers and sisters. Romans 8.15 And as fellow members of God's family, we are commanded to love one another. That should be the expectation in every nuclear family that we have represented this morning. The expectation, mom and dad, uh, son, daughter, brother, sister, the expectation that God has on you is that you love those that are within your family. It shouldn't be commanded, but it is. It shouldn't have to be said, but it does. Uh, Nonetheless, 
it, 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 it comes more naturally within a biological family, within a nuclear family, uh, that there is love there, right? And that's one of the blessings of family. How much more in the family of God should there be love? How much more should it not need to be commanded or reminded of or spurred on? But such is our sinful heart, right? We need those reminders. So I want to remind you, dear Christian, you must love your brothers and sisters in Christ. You don't get to choose which ones you will love. It's all of them across the board. Even the annoying ones. <laughs> right? Even the annoying ones, the ones that just, just don't have to do hardly anything to get under your skin. Even them. You love. Even the ones that disappoint you, you still love. Why? Because Christ must have the central and controlling role in your life and ministry. Because we get this model from Christ himself. From God himself. We are commanded as fellow members of God family to love one another the way that Christ first loved us. And gave himself for us to be the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 4, 10 and 11. So let us love one another as a family of God, church. Secondly, we are the church of the living God. The church of the living God. Church, ecclesia in, in, in the Greek, uh, uh, means the called out ones. And that's a loaded term. What we often maybe don't think in the, ter in the idea of the called out ones. When we talk about the church, we don't normally, I think, think about what I mean is we're the called out ones. But that's what the word means. It means that, that we, the people of God, are called out from the world and called unto God. Just as God called out and redeemed uh, Israel out of Egypt, remember? He said, I will rescue you, but I'm not just going to let you go. I'm going to rescue you and you're going to come to my mountain and you're going to serve me. You've been serving Pharaoh, the pagan, this pagan man, long enough. Now it's time to serve me. It's calling out and a calling to. And we are called to God and we are the church of the living God. That word of, the church of the living God, means that we are his possession. We are the called out ones that are the possession of God. We're his church. His called out ones, bought by the precious blood of Christ. And we are the possession of the living God. The living God. He, he is not one of those dead pagan gods of idolatry, idolatrous and pagan uh, religions and cults. He is a living God. The living God. God. The gods of this world are not alive. 
whether that God is money or fame or prestige or the respect of others or things or relationships. And those so-called gods, those idols in your life are not really alive because they cannot hear you and they cannot help you and they cannot save you. They're dead. But our triune God is living, church. He is living and active. That means that He is personally involved in the life of His church. God the Father strengthens us to, to be the church, Romans 16, 25 and 27. God the Son builds and guards His church today, Matthew 16, 18. And then God the Holy Spirit gives life and unity to the church, Ephesians 4, 3. The triune God is living and active in the life of Redeemer Bible Church today. Praise the Lord. And as such, we are the pillar and support of the truth. The pillar and support of the truth. Pillar means that it has the idea that we hold up the truth. We hold up the truth. As the pillar of truth, the church actually holds it up. Actually holds up the truth. Sustains it. Now, the story of Samson, remember Samson? And all of his sinful ways, and, and especially at the end of his life where, where he died. Remember how Samson died? Kids, remember from class? I, hope, I think that you went through that already, maybe last year. Uh, remember from last year? How, how did Samson die? He, he, he leaned up against the pillars. Remember, he was in that grand room with all the Philistines there. And he leaned up against the pillars, didn't he? Until they broke and the whole room collapsed, the whole roof collapsed in over them. And in his death, he gained victory over the Philistines, a picture of Christ and his victory over sin and death. But that, that picture gives us a good illustration of the value of pillars, doesn't it? All he needed to do was push over a couple pillars and everything came crumbling down. There's a parallel to the truth and the church. All the church needs to do is crumble and break and the truth is compromised. One theologian said that the church is God's means of making the truth stand. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. Isaiah 40, verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. But how does it stand forever in this age? Through the church. God uses the church as the means to uphold that promise of his word stands forever. Because the church will stand. You see, our security as a church... If we honor God rightly, our security is found in, in, in the abiding, enduring word of God. Because if we fall, the, tr the, the truth falls with us. 
how does the church of Christ hold up the truth up? Uh, well, first, through revelation. Revelation of truth through the apostles and prophets. And the church of Christ also holds up truth through the, the church's proclamation of the truth. That's how we hold up the truth. We proclaim it. Third, through the church's administration of the truth. That is, it is only here in the context of the local church that we can enjoy true God-designed worship and growth. And then lastly, the church upholds the truth through protection of the truth. That is protection against false teaching. That's our responsibility. It's to guard the truth, right? This is how we hold up the truth. Through the initial revelation of the apostles and prophets, through our ongoing proclamation, and then our administration of, of doing the truth, and then protection of the truth from error. Now, we are not only the pillar of the truth, but we're the support of the truth. These are two sides of the same coin, you could say, where if pillar means to hold up the truth, support has the idea of stability and durability. It, has the, it is often connected with the function of a foundation of a building. So this means that we are God's enduring foundation for his truth. We are God's enduring foundation for his truth. If you want truth in this world, you should be able to go to a local church and hear the truth. That's what we're saying. You don't turn on the whatever. You don't turn on the TV or go to your phone or whatever else. Of course, you go to the word of God. But that's the point is this is where you'll hear the word of God in the local church. So we are the foundation for the truth because we preach the truth. As we just saw, the church is God's means of making the truth stand. So if the church falls, again, God's truth falls. But again, there's no worry about either of them falling because God promises that his word will endure forever and Christ promises, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Both are secure, and they, in, they enjoy that security together in the design of God. So there's no worry that either will ever fall. The church and the truth will never be overpowered, will never be defeated. So, what do you do with this? Simply, uh, don't listen to those fools on YouTube who tell you that you can have a thriving relationship with God if you just leave the church first. They're fools. I make no apology about that. If a man or a woman says, you know, what you really need is to leave the church and then it's just you and Jesus, you and God, then you'll really, you really get close to the Lord. That one is a fool. Why? Because of what the church is. We're the family of God. We're the called out possession of God. We're the pillar and support of the truth. 
those who distance themselves from the church distance themselves from the truth. They come hand in hand. One theologian says, we as believers should direct our primary efforts towards the edification of the local church. This is how you apply it. This is how you apply these realities of what we are. As a believer, Christian, you should direct your primary efforts of your life toward the edification of this church. That's how you live it out. Rather than, he says, rather than any other organization or institution outside of the church. Red Cross and all these other organizations and, and, and uh, institutions, they have their place. But the church comes first. So no, don't miss a, a church service because you're going to go volunteer somewhere. No, you volunteer here. You come and worship here, and you tell them to wait. You don't give to the Red Cross or give to that donation or whatever and say, well, I don't have much left over for the church. I'll just give this much. No, it goes the other way. You give to the church first, and then you see what you have left over for those other things that you're burdened for. Dear Christian, do not forsake the church for your sake, for your own good. Don't forsake the church. Because the further you drift from the church, the further you drift from enjoying God as your Father. The further you drift from the church, the further you drift from His loving and living involvement in your life. And the further you drift from the church, the further you drift from the truth of God in His Word. So, the church is the family of God. We are the set-apart possession of God. We have been established to uphold the truth of God. But what's the truth? What is our message? Well, in a word, Christ. Christ. Secondly, this morning, the church's declaration. The church's declaration. This is what he gets at in this initial phrase here in verse 16. By common and by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. What does that mean? This phrase, by common confession, it introduces a kind of creed or statement that all true believers can and must agree upon. And he says, great is the mystery of godliness. So the question is this. How is the church going to live out its, this nature, this calling of being the family of God? How can we fulfill our role of, of upholding the truth? How are we to be marked as pious, godly, or set apart How do we break the cycle of sinfulness that plague the people of God in the Old Testament or even in generations more recent than ours? 
The secret of godliness. The mystery of godliness. That has been hidden but is now revealed. That's the idea of mystery in the New Testament. The secret or mystery of godliness that was once hidden but is now revealed is Christ. How are we going to do this? How are we going to be a godly church, a God-honoring church? Jesus Christ. That's how. He is how. Our central focus, church. Our essential affirmation is the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we keep Christ as our focal point in every aspect of the church, then we will be able to fulfill our calling to be the family of God, the possession of God, upholding the truth of God. But we got to keep Him first. we got to keep Him central. Christ must have the central, controlling role in the life and ministry of this church. If we are ever to be a good, healthy family of God, a, 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 a holy people of God, called out, and a strong pillar and support of the truth of God. If we're going to do that, Christ has to be at the center. And we trust that He is the center of this church, but this is why. And he unfolds in the rest of this verse the person and the work of Jesus Christ. This is the mystery of godliness. This is the, the, the secret of, of how we can really fulfill what it means to be the people of God. The Old Testament saints didn't have that. They didn't have this mystery revealed. And, and we can see that in, in their failures. Generations past, even in our own church or in our own lives, uh, why, why did people fall away or why, did, why are churches divided? It's because Christ is not the center. So let's, let's look at this one. First of all, he who was manifested in the flesh. This speaks of the incarnation of the Son of God. Notice that uh, the Son was manifested. Manifested in the flesh. Revealed in the flesh. Made visible in the flesh. That means that He existed before being in flesh. He existed as the eternal God before becoming a man. Philippians 2, 6 through 8. You see, the birth of Christ, what we just got done celebrating, right? The birth of Christ is not the point of Christ's beginning, but it is the point of his manifestation, you see. He was... The unseen God, the, the God who dwells in unapproachable light. But then we saw him. Then he was made manifest when he became one of us. The invisible God became visible in human flesh. Church, we worship the God-man, Jesus Christ. Colossians 2.9. In him, all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. 
He, and he became one of us. The significance of this is he became one of us in order to die as one of us. He had to be human, you see. He had to be human because he died in the place of humans. But because he is God, his death was sufficient to pay for all our sins. To put it simply, note this. His humanity was able to suffer God's wrath in our place. His humanity was able to suffer God's wrath in our place. But his deity was able to satisfy God's wrath in our place. Amen. See how it has to be both. His humanity, in his humanity, he was able to suffer in our place because he was one of us. But because he is God, his payment was eternal Amen. and infinite. And so he was able to satisfy the wrath of God in our place. Something that you and I could never do. Oh, dear friend, an eternity in hell could never pay off the debt that you owe to God. There is no purgatory. There's no lobby in heaven. There's no waiting list. It's you're either in or you're out. Your debt is either paid or you will pay it for all eternity in hell. He was manifested in the flesh for this very purpose. But being manifest in the flesh, he was also vindicated in the spirit, Paul goes on to say. Vindicated in the spirit. Now, the sinlessness and the truthfulness of Jesus was vindicated. It was authenticated, validated by the Holy Spirit. How so? Well, when Jesus was baptized and and. The, the Father testified that he was well-pleasing to the Father. The Holy Spirit descended on Jesus as a sign of proof for John the Baptist. This is the one, Matthew 3. This was to vindicate Jesus' ministry from its very beginning. And Jesus' sinlessness was vindicated by his resurrection. And his resurrection, by the way, according to Romans 1, verse 4, his resurrection was accomplished in cooperation with the Holy Spirit. So all throughout the New Testament, we see the Father raise him from the dead, Christ raised himself from the dead, and the Spirit was involved in his power to raise Christ from the dead. The triune God was involved in this wonderful resurrection. Amen. And, and the resurrection itself... Uh, uh, enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit and the Father and the Son, but here enabled by the Holy Spirit, was, was proof that Jesus was sinless. I'm going to think about it. If Jesus had committed just one sin, he would be worthy of an eternity of hell, right? He would have stayed dead because he was still paying off that one sin. It just takes one, friend. But, because Christ was our sinless and spotless sacrifice in our place, he had not one sin. Because of that, 
God the Father raised him from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit to prove he didn't do anything wrong. It wasn't his sins that he was dying for. It was our sins that he was dying for. And he paid it off. You see? Vindicated in the Spirit. Third, he is seen by angels. Christ, in his earthly ministry, was seen by angels. Now, the unfallen angels, I believe, is what's being spoken of here. The unfallen angels have been involved in the life and ministry of Christ from the very beginning. They, they saw Christ and ministered to him regularly, right from his birth. They announced his coming to Joseph, to Mary, and the shepherds. And then, after Jesus withstood his temptation in the wilderness, it says in Matthew 4.11 that angels came and began to minister to him. Even all the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus chose to go forward to the cross instead of saving his own life, it says in Luke twenty-two forty-three that an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And then it goes beyond. When Jesus rose from the grave, angels were there to announce his resurrection, let alone roll away the stone from his tomb. And then when Jesus ascended into heaven, in Acts 1, we see angels were there to, to comfort and remind the disciples he's going to come back again. Amen. He was seen by angels, testified of, and ministered to by angels. Fourth, Christ was proclaimed among the nations. Proclaimed among the nations. This is speaking of it uh, in the past tense because it's already started to go out to the nations and, and it's just going to be a continuing action of the Lord to, to have Christ proclaimed among the nations. This, this glorious, incarnate, sinless, crucified, risen, exalted Savior is to be proclaimed to all the world. And the church, we are commanded to what? Make disciples of the nations. All the nations, indeed. The apostles in Acts 1 verse 8 were to be witnesses of Christ in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, even to the end of the earth, it says. The name of Christ must and will be declared to all the world because, 1 John 4.14, 4, He is the Savior of the world. Doesn't mean He's going to save everybody. But there's only one Savior for the world, and that is Jesus Christ. Amen. That's why missions and your evangelism, Christian, is so important. This is the point. It's to exalt Christ by making disciples in this neighborhood, this city, and this world. That's what we're about at this church. That's our mission. That's our goal. We must proclaim him. That's why we have a separate fund for missions. Because it's that important to have a separate uh, designation in your budget to support. Because it's that important. We don't just give them a little bit of, 
of what we get. No, whatever, whatever goes into that fund goes to them. This is why we must get on board with missions and with evangelism, church. Because this is where the train is going. And if we don't get on board, it's going to pass us by. And Christ will remove our lampstand. We will cease to exist as Redeemer Bible Church if we do not wholeheartedly give ourselves over to missions and evangelism. That must be our driving uh, force in this church. And not just proclaimed to the world, but believed on in the world. The next phrase, believed on in the world. Christ is the only one who is worthy to be the object of our undying faith and trust. Him alone. Why? Because He alone has purchased our salvation. Because He alone has provided atonement for our sins. He has soothed the wrath of God in our place. He alone is King of kings and Lord of lords. He alone is the answer to every person in every nation on every continent. That's his glory, you see. Who, who do you know in this world, or what is there in this world where if, if you know, they are the answer for you here in San Jose and somebody in Papua New Guinea or Zimbabwe or wherever else? Only Christ can meet the true needs of anyone. That is his glory. Dear sinner, I speak to you. I plead with you. Believe on him today. Amen. What are you waiting for? Amen. What else must be said? What in the world does God have left to prove to you? Stop it. Stop the rebellion. Lay down your, your weapons of hostility. Set aside your excuses. Turn from all of your idols and fall at the Savior's feet. Plead for His forgiveness. Trust in his salvation and submit to his rule over your life. What are you waiting for? Do it today. Come to Christ today. Because tomorrow is not promised. And don't dare God. He doesn't owe you tomorrow, friend. Don't dare him. Take up this offer today. Lastly, Christ was taken up in glory. Oh, what a glorious truth that Christ is alive today. Amen? Amen. He is alive and well, and he, he is 
dwelling in glory right now. And after he was resurrected from the dead, Jesus ascended into heaven. Acts 1. And when Jesus left this earth, Hebrews 12, 2 tells us, when he left this earth, he, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God on high. Amen. Oh, what glorious position. What, a, what an exalted state is our, is our Lord and Savior in, even today. One, one commentator writes a, a wonderful point. If the angels sang in wonder at the birth of Christ when he came down to earth, then how they must have sung when he returned to heaven. What a shout must have gone up when the everlasting gates lifted for the king of glory. I want to read to you Psalm 24, 7 and 8. This was the scene when Christ came back home. When he went back after having bought your salvation, Christian, and conquered death and was ascended, he went to heaven. And here's the scene. Lift up your gates. Lift up your heads, O gates. And be lifted up, O ancient doors. That the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? Yahweh. Strong and mighty. Yahweh. Mighty. In battle. He won your victory, dear Christian. And he ascended to the right hand of God on high. And all the chambers of heaven filled with the praise of the angels. Oh, it must have been just. A deafening sound. Oh, may he have that position in this church. May he get our highest praises. May he be the central and controlling influence in your life and in the life of this church. The point is this. When we keep Christ as the central focal point of this church, then we will fulfill our calling to be a loving family of God, a holy people of God, and a pillar of the truth of God. Christ must have the central controlling role of your life and this ministry. We must have Christ as the fusing agent between us as we share in Christ, we will be strongly bonded together and we will be a useful vessel for the gospel of God for this world around us. And it has to start in your heart, Christian. He has to capture you. I trust that you would get your eyes off of the stuff of this world and fixate your heart upon him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for such a rich reminder that it's all about Christ. Help us, Lord, to remember him even as we take of this table, Lord. Help us to, uh, again, forsake our sin, 
to seek forgiveness at the cross and to commit ourselves to godliness. All things that are only possible through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for your love and your patience with us. Help us to honor Christ by uh, placing him at the center position of this church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, We want to take...